Hey, good morning, RVCC Digital Campus. So glad to be joining you today and preaching with y'all. My name is Joe Fennessy. I'm the campus pastor out here at our Parkland location and a former Graham Kapowson Eagle who still holds a grudge against the Bethel Bison, but we're not going to talk about that today. Maybe some other day, but this morning there's some more important things I got to say. So I know I'm going to get some flack for this and some of you are going to get mad at me, but I have been here for at least seven months now and it costs the church more to fire me than to keep me, I think. So here's the truth. DreamWorks, The Prince of Egypt is the best Bible movie of all time. Now, I'm not saying the best Christian movie of all time, because if that were the case, nothing can beat The Lord of the Rings and don't even go to Narnia with me. That's, that doesn't even compete. But when it comes to strictly adapting a Bible story, Prince of Egypt is better than the Ten Commandments, better than the Passion of the Christ, better than the Chosen, I know I said it, and yes, better than Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. I mean, you had Val Kilmer as Moses, Ralph Fiennes, the guy who played Voldemort as Ramses, Patrick Stewart was his dad, Sandra Bullock is in the movie, Jeff Goldblum is in the movie, and best of all, let's not forget that Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston lended their vocals for the official theme song. And for the Gen Z kids out there, I know you don't really get that reference, but it's like if Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift joined forces, except way better. But as much as I love this film and as much as you should love this film, I also have to admit the ending is sort of misleading. If you've ever seen the movie, you know that it ends on a really, really high note. The Egyptians are defeated. The Israelites are set free. It looks like everyone is going to live happily ever after. And you're just praising God with the credits as Mariah is singing. There can be miracles. And then you realize that the Prince of Egypt conveniently ends the adaptation right before Exodus chapter 32. And to be fair, you can't really blame DreamWorks for that decision because the story gets really, well, complicated. In fact, it gets really messy because up until this point from Exodus 1 all the way through about 31, the story was all about the Israelites being taken out of Egypt. But now that they're free, uh, there's a more complicated exodus that needs to take place. I think the folk uh, philosophers Brooks and Dunn say something about how you can take a person out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the person. In the same manner, the easy part was getting the people out of Egypt. But what's harder now is getting the Egypt out of them. Think about it this way. The Israelites were in Egypt for over 400 years. And while being enslaved was far from ideal, there were some daily rhythms and patterns that people got used to living under an empire. Uh, for instance, while in Egypt, Israel never had to wonder, uh, where will we sleep at night? Where's our next meal coming from? Who will protect us from those threats out there? Who will be our gods? Who will give us meaning and, and, and purpose in our lives for the long run? And the answer to all of these questions was the Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. They will provide. And so they said, serve us, better yet, worship us, and you won't have to worry about a thing. And so for over for centuries, the Israelites got used to, they got discipled into a posture of depending on the might and splendor of Egypt. But then their circumstances changed. God frees them. He brings them across the Red Sea only to now put them into the wilderness. And now they're forced to start asking questions that they never had to ask before. Because when they were in Egypt... They knew that water came from the Nile. 
They knew that the fish and cucumber buffet was always open, see Numbers 11.5, and that if there was any problem, the Pharaoh had 20,000 soldiers and all the gods of Egypt ready with horses and chariots and all the powers to overcome whatever threat was over there. But now in the wilderness, the question is, who can they depend on? At the beginning of Exodus 32, it's been 40 days since the Israelites have heard from Moses or God. 40 days of silence. 40 days of uncertainty. Uh, 40 more days than they are used to of not knowing what to do and who to turn to. And so this is what happens according to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, uh, we don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This story illustrates for us uh, what is true about being human that we often don't really think about, and that's this. We are made for worship, and we will not be satisfied until we find something or someone to worship. And this applies to all of us, whether we are following Jesus, uh, spiritually curious but not religious, or we would categorize ourselves as completely opposed to faith altogether. And here's why. Worship isn't ultimately about singing or believing in a God or giving offering or volunteering your time or belonging to a community group, but worship is first and foremost about where you put your trust. As the New Testament scholar Gregory Beale puts it, what you worship is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. You can sing about the goodness of God all you want on Sunday morning and still be worshiping someone else with the rest of your life. And vice versa, this whole Christianity thing might sound silly to you, but I guarantee you are relying on something for ultimate security. Whether it's your relationships, your job, your bank account, your health, who runs your local and federal government, or even yourself, there's at least one person or thing you're depending on. What happens in Exodus 32 is not about the Israelites being silly and primitive people who have nothing better to do in the desert rather than to deify a cow, but it has everything to do with worship. For 400 years, Israel got used to depending on Egypt for everything. And so when faced with uncertainty, it's only natural the habits of worship they developed over 400 years predictably overruled the habits of 40 days. And so they took the gold they received from the Egyptians and created a golden calf. Now, you may be wondering why a calf and not a dragon or something a lot cooler or something you can worship. Well, because a calf represents the Egyptian god Ptah, 
who was believed to be the creator of the universe. And if anyone was going to meet the Israelites' needs in the wilderness, well, among the Egyptian gods, it was going to be Ptah. So they determined that all in worship for the God who rescued them was way too risky. But all in worship for Ptah, for Pharaoh, for Egypt, well, while it wasn't perfect, they at least knew what to expect from them. And more importantly, how to anticipate the disappointments that came with worshiping them. And here's the thing, we aren't so different. How often do we go all in on the people and things that can't hold the weight of our expectations, but do just enough to comfort us? And this tendency for misdirected worship uh, reminds me of this horrific practice that took over, uh, over TikTok a couple years ago. It's called the Milk Crate Challenge. And in fact, instead of talking about it, let me show you what it's all about. Well, so back in 2020, when we were all just quarantining and didn't really have anything to do, apparently a couple of Gen Zers thought it was a really, really great idea to go behind grocery stores and to take these things that no one was really using, like milk crates, right? And this thing developed called the Milk Crate Challenge, and the idea is something really simple. The idea was you get as many of these as you can, and you would lay it, right? And then you would kind of make a pyramid out of it. So you do one here, then you make two. And unfortunately, due to inflation, I couldn't get any more crates. But the idea, you kind of get the idea here, right? So you would start off and you would jump onto one. Ooh, that does not sound good. And then you go onto two. Right? But you notice, I don't know if you can hear it or not, as I got into the second one, everything is starting to like shake a little bit. There's a little bit of sound to it. Uh, it sounds like it's going to break through, right? Because most scholars have identified that milk crates are not built to endure human weight. But, you know, two is not going to get you much clout, right? So what kids would do is eventually, You'd stack three, and then four, then six. I think six is safe, right, Crystal? I think six might be safe, right? And then you would stack it like there, and hopefully at some point, you can get to the top of those crates. And then you would try to stand and try to not fall without but notice, as soon as I put my foot on this, there is no way I should go up and stand on top of these crates, right? Because once again, these crates can't hold me up. And so the reason why I want to tie us into this idea is because we laugh and we say, no, Joe, that's stupid. Why would you go and stand on top of these crates just to illustrate a point? But this is what we do in our lives. And usually we're not on one or two of these, but imagine if these crates were things that we relied on, that we depended on, that we worshiped, that our ultimate trust was in. Uh, let's say one crate is like our relationships, one crate is our finances, one crate is our job, one crate is our hopes and dreams. And what we do as human beings, if we stack one 
on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. And then we try to stand on top of it all as if it can bear the weight of our hopes and expectations. And yet, just as you know, if I go on top of this, I'm going to fall, and I'm not sure if my deductible will cover it or not through the health insurance because like, that was a stupid thing for me to do. Uh, in the same way, when we depend on anything else but God, when our trust is in something else but God, there's a way that these crates and those expectations that we bear uh, on other things have a way of crumbling down. And that's what we're going to return to back into the sermon to talk more about. So just like the insanity of standing on milk crates, our patas, our pharaohs, our Egypts cannot bear our worship or the weight of our expectations. And if you find that you, like Israel, have discovered this recently, you've, you've lost your balance, the crates you've appointed to hold you up have let you down, well, then the good news is this. You may not be all in for God, but God is all in for you. We see this even here in the Old Testament. On the one hand, Exodus 32 through 34 is all about the golden calf debacle and the consequences that result from it. But then you get Exodus 35 through 40. You get God's grace and generosity on full display. Because here, God has decided that despite Israel's faithlessness, God is going to be faithful. And despite Israel's attempts to move away from God, God is ready to move near to them. And so he instructs the Israelites to build him a tent so that he can move into their neighborhood and be for them what Patah can never be. And this is how the people respond to God's shocking news. It says this, the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. The Israelites experienced the radical grace of God towards them. And so they responded in worship that was characterized by radical generosity because they understood that worship, devoid of generosity, does not fully understand grace. Israel understood that their betrayal in Exodus 32 should have resulted in God's abandonment, but God did not need to forgive Israel. They knew this. God did not need to forgive Israel. He could have left them with patah and called it good. They knew that God did not need them and that he would be just fine without them. But the crazy good news is that despite this, God was all in for them, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. And that meant the only appropriate response for Israel was to be all in for God. As we explore what it means to be all in for Jesus as a church this season, I find that there are uh, two barriers we've run into, and they both have to do with worship. 
First, like Israel, I believe that many of us, including myself, have split allegiances when it comes to who or what we worship. I may be a campus pastor, but I'd be lying to you if I say I don't struggle with this. Uh, having this job doesn't make me spiritually superior, just has to chill. And if anything, sometimes I wonder if God put me in this role where I have to reflect on his word for 40 hours a week, because otherwise I would be way more prone to wondering, calf making, and crate traveling. So if you're like me, I want to challenge you this week to answer this question honestly. Who or what are you worshiping in place of God or alongside God? That is, who do you cling to for your ultimate security? And second, unlike Israel, some of us don't understand how good grace is. Because if we did, I think our worship would look a lot different. Now, before I go uh, pointing fingers, I'll redirect this one back to myself as well. Uh, sometimes I get caught up in the myth that, of course, God is gracious. Of course, God is forgiving because he has to be. But that kind of thinking severely undervalues what God has done for me in Jesus. Because here's the, here's the contrast. God shows up in a tent for Israel and their response is, we are all in and we won't withhold anything. They had to be restrained. But God shows up in Jesus, dies for my sins, defeats death, and empowers a multi-ethnic family to bring his kingdom into the world. And my response is, uh, how much of me do you really need, God? How much of me do you actually want? If, if you don't run into the trouble of worshiping anyone or anything else but God, then the next thing you need to ask yourself is this. Does your worship understand the weight of grace? Does your worship know exactly what it is that God has done for you? RVCC, I know these are really uncomfortable questions. And if you hated this message, you can reach me at jeff at rainierview.org. Uh, would love to take all those messages there. But please don't miss the truth that drives all these introspective questions that God is all in for you. Not because he has to be, but because he chooses to be. And in return, God calls us to all in worship of him. Not because he needs it, but because only he can keep us secure for good. As we've been talking about worship, we asked a couple of you all to share some stories about what worship looks like for you and what it looks like for you to be all in. And so at this time, I would love to uh, transition to a short video uh, from Joe and Denise as they talk about worshiping here at RVCC. My name is Joe and I've been attending uh, RVCC for roughly 12 years, um, according to my significant other, because I'm not too good for um, times. Uh, my name is Denise. I am Joe's wife and uh, we have been attending for about 12 years. His sister and brother-in-law invited us to, to come and uh, once we came we felt very welcomed and it's just where we stayed. I'm involved in kids ministry. That's one of the first uh, things that I got involved with. In myself, I was like, I can't even stand my own kids at times. And um, there's a whole lot of no's that um, I was telling myself. Um, but just submitting to that and where he's called me to, I'm able to find out more about myself 
be a better father uh, for my kids, um, help understand just kids in general. And um, those kids have learned things from me and I from them. And it's just been a life-changing experience. And then I do the worship. I do worship and singing. I never would have seen myself doing um, uncomfortable. And of course the no's come up again, but just uh, submitting to what he could be calling me to and um, his will. It still scares me every once in a while, but it, it, it brings me a lot of peace um, doing, doing that and um, fulfilling what God's blessed me with um, as one body. Off the record uh, with the uh, welcome team, uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm logistically on the welcome team. It's just something that God's been working in my heart. Um, I'm naturally an introvert, and um, now it, it seems like more and more, once again, he's showing me who I am in my submission. Um, and now I, I can't wait to welcome and greet people. I've had a number of spiritual defining moments at RVCC. Um, there was, of course, the baptism um, in 2017. Um, and just the experiences I've had in kids ministry and on the worship team. But I'd say one that sticks out the most for me is um, when I baptized my son, uh, Joe Mario, and my nephews, um, um, Cash and uh, Luke. It was just surprising seeing me where I've came from and what I've done in the past, ultimately doing what I was doing there. And it was like me looking at myself in this uh, situation and once again not recognizing who I was anymore but really embracing of who I've become and um, it's just been it was very spiritually defining. Uh, we choose to give our time and uh, resources to RVCC because we do see the um, the joy that RVCC puts into the community and um, helping those that are around um, the church and just I could just see the amount of help that is given um, you know without being asked to. I believe that um, giving is just uh, so important uh, to be able to bless others um, um, as others bless us um, we really have to allow those opportunities on both sides to take place uh, for us to be able to experience the one body. It's all his at the end of the day um, we're just holding holding on to it and a lot of times we don't make um, the best of decisions as far as financially with it and our time as well but um, we found more and more um, by freeing up um, our finances, some of our finances and our time um, that it's just been really um, able to grow us and uh, we're able to um, see more and more of the fruit that comes out of that just in submission. Living a generous life, and especially with younger families um, like us, uh, we feel like when our kids are young at the age that they are, and they're watching their parents, um, you know, still also, you know, younger parents, and they're seeing how much we're, you know, giving our time and being generous to the church, it allows them to open their hearts um, as well, even at this young age for them. And when they grow up, they'll also you know, hopefully instill that in their kids and so our grandkids and so on and so forth. You li you're living a, a whole lot, lot more of a fulfilled life, like uh, us in our position, um, young kids um, getting sick in school or being in sports, um, time is at a minimum. 
Um, and we think that we could do all these things um, and just um, go on with life and we, we even fool ourselves, we're doing all right or we're getting by. Um, but, but the main thing is, is that's within our own will. Um, we, once we allow God and submit to what He could be calling us to, we find out really um, how much more we could be doing in, in our lives and actually be able to rejoice and find peace in it, not feel busy because He's going to really be able to show you and He's shown us that we're able to do so much more than we ever thought we've done um, because we've submitted to wherever He has called us. I just want to encourage you that much more um, that it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to find out the fruit that comes out of it when you start to submit more of your time and um, what God's blessed you with. Um, if you submit and step into these roles as He's called you to, um, that He's already spoke to you, um, that you're going to experience of how, who, who you are. You're going to find out more and more of who you are um, by just submitting to these uncomfortable situations allow you to grow and you're going to see yourself just like me, just like my wife um, and uh, the brothers and sisters that I'm in fellowship with as well um, in RVCC that uh, we find more and more out about ourselves um, when we pursue um, God and what He's called us to do.